I encourage you to turn with me in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of this passage. Of course, verses 5 and 6 are by far and away, I'm sure, the most uh, well-known passages that are often memorized, uh, especially by our, our children in grade school age. But this whole section, it commends the wisdom that we are to gain, particularly from our parents, but, but throughout the Christian life, the wisdom that we are to gain from one another concerning how we serve the Lord, how we live before the Lord, how we embrace the wisdom of knowing the Lord our God. That's, that's what is before us this morning. It's a, a message that we all need to take to heart because it transforms not just the way we think, but all that we do. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Proverbs, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved children of God through Christ, from our earliest days, our lives are filled with decisions. With whom will I play? And what games will we enjoy together? What food will I eat? And how will I respond when the food before me is something I don't enjoy? What sort of entertainment will I cherish, enjoy in my spare time? And and how will I respond when mom or dad calls me away from that entertainment because of chores they want me to do? What work will I seek as I grow older? And how will I deal with co-workers who are perhaps ungodly or bosses who are very unpleasant? Decisions, small and large, with major consequences and also minor ones. And they surround us. Some decisions have minimal implications, but others will affect the entire course of our lives. Recognizing that, the parent who is wise will seek to foster in his children at an early age the ability to tackle those decisions with wisdom. Not merely with strategy, learning how to count the cost of various options and choosing the one that costs the least, but responding to those decisions, to those choices with actual wisdom, 
that we might make the choices that, that aren't simply the ones that cost the least, but are the ones that are morally and spiritually right and good and profitable in the sight of God. Part of the way we do that, part of the way we teach that wisdom is by guiding our children into particular experiences, right? Kids, you do understand this, right? Mom and dad guide you into particular experiences. Some experiences they know will be a blessing to you so that you can experience how wonderful it is to take the path of wisdom. And other times, they will guide you in such a way as to allow you to take the path of folly because they know that The cost of this foolish decision won't be too great and perhaps it will teach you that folly is a bad thing. So that's one way they teach you wisdom from an early age. Another part is through our words, through what we tell them. We tell them, this is a wise choice to make and here's why it's wise. And this is a foolish choice to make and here's why it's foolish. And so we work through that decision-making process with our children, with our young people, with our young adults so that they can understand that the way that we work through those decisions. But our text today talks about something even more foundational. It's not talking about this particular realm of decision making, this particular aspect of our life. No, it's talking about simply the the need to, to embrace wisdom, to saturate our lives, to fill our existence with wisdom. Not necessarily just wisdom in our relationships or in our words or in our work or in our entertainment, but wisdom in all things that we might learn to crave, to desire, to delight in wisdom. And it might, might seem that that's kind of a waste of time. I mean, who wouldn't desire wisdom? But the thing is, naturally, we don't. Naturally, we choose the path of folly. Naturally, we choose the path of sin and rebellion and wickedness that will cost us everything. And so as parents, especially, but even as simply brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to cultivate in one another a love for, a desire for, wisdom. And that's what we find here. We find in this text before us this morning a godly father who is seeking to immerse his child in true wisdom and in the delight of true wisdom. Speaking especially to the parents, do not forget that this is your calling. It's easy to forget. Because we get so caught up in the nuts and bolts, in the the, the practical application, in the right here, right now, decisions that need to be made, experiences that have to be undergone. And we forget the big picture stuff, the calling to urge our children to love wisdom, to pursue the wisdom of God in Christ. That's what this text is about. And that's what we as parents need to be about. And again, that's what we as a congregation need to be about. If you don't have children, that doesn't mean you don't have a calling in this way. You're called to walk alongside of one another. We are one body. And that means we're all responsible for one another. Certainly when you see somebody going astray, you're called to draw them back into the path of wisdom. But but especially you who are older, don't forget that you have a calling with regard to those who are younger. Don't just look at those teenagers and shake your head and say, Oh, 
They're not the way we were when we were their age. Yes, they are. They're, just, they're exactly the same. They just have technology too. And they need you to cultivate in them wisdom. And that means they need you to cultivate a relationship with them. They need you to come alongside of them and take an interest in them and learn what makes them tick so that they can gain from you an appreciation for that wisdom. So this text speaks to all of us. This is our calling to cultivate that wisdom in one another. And it's our calling also to receive that cultivation, to receive that delight in wisdom and to not take it lightly. A godly father immerses his child in true wisdom. And that begins in our text in the first four verses as he commands the embrace of fatherly wisdom. The embrace of the wisdom that he brings. As a faithful father, God's servant here has instructed his sons. He has given a law. He has given commandments. And he wants his son to focus on remembering, on taking up, on on internalizing those commandments. Now, if he's a godly father, those commands, those laws, they're going to reflect what we find in Scripture. But they're going to be very practically applied, right? They're going to take those commands of Scripture and they're going to apply them to an age that's filled with iPads and cell phones and automobiles and a world that has shrunk in such a way that our children can move thousands of miles simply to go to college. The godly father has laid that that law and those commandments before his child and, and he knows, see, human nature doesn't change. He knows the same things we know. That when we speak these things that we find to be so important that we know are so essential to their hearts, they're going, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, uh uh-huh, can I go now? See, that's always the temptation, especially for, for you who are young, to forget, to let it go in one ear and out the other because you're so focused on the thing that's right in front of you, on the thing that you just got, you just can't wait to get to. Not realizing that that's passing away, that that will disappear from your mind and from your heart in an instant. But the stuff that your parents are talking to you about, the stuff that the elders are teaching you, that's the stuff that's going to last forever. And so he, he urges his son, you must intentionally strive to take up these commands, to obey this law, to subdue yourself before it. Because in this is wisdom, in this is life. My son, do not forget my law. But instead, let your heart keep my commands. Do not forget. We're always so tempted to forget. And so we need intentionally to remember that which has been entrusted to us. It's hard to appreciate that when you're young. I remember laughing when my dad said he went away to the Navy for four years and when he came back he found out that his father had gone to college because all of a sudden he was so smart. It wasn't that his father had gone to college. It was that suddenly after four years away he realized how much wisdom his father had. I laughed about that when he told me that when I was a teenager until I went away to college for four years and came back and it seemed like my father had taken a graduate degree. All of a sudden, he understood things. When we're young, we don't grasp that, but we need to trust the Lord 
that what our parents are teaching us is wise, is good, and therefore we must strive to not forget. And not just to not forget the commands. That's easy to do, right? I'm sorry, Dad, I completely forgot. Oh, did I forget to do it again? Well, well, you never told me that I shouldn't do that. We always hear those excuses, right? We always utter those excuses. God says, don't forget the words that your parents have taught you. Don't forget the commands that have been entrusted to you. But instead, let your heart keep those commandments. That's active. He wants his young to, to intentionally work to remember his words. That requires work. That requires intentional attention. But again, it's not just an academic thing. It's not just intellectual. He wants you to remember in your heart. It's important. When they say, hey, pay attention. When you go to work, I don't want you to just sit around and do the, the least amount you can do. You're working as for God and not for men. So do the best job you can, even when people aren't, aren't paying attention. And you say, yeah, Dad, whatever, I'm working at McDonald's. No! It's important at McDonald's too. It's important at, at High V. It's important wherever God has put you to work. And not just in the, the things He tells you about how you work and the things that He tells you about your relationships with friends and, and your need to rest in the Lord on the Lord's Day and your need to take serious your catechism lessons and all the other wisdom and insight that your parents have given you. Let your heart keep those commandments. Because if you do length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. Look at the, look at the reward. Look at the promise that God sets before that young man, that young woman, who takes seriously the wisdom that God imparts through their parents. Time. Oh, the older you get, the more you'll realize that time is one of the most precious gifts God gives us. We always long for more time, more time to accomplish, more time to do, more time to spend with those whom we love. There always seems to be a short supply of time, but God can multiply time for those whom He loves. He can, he can give you the time to accomplish far more than you ever thought you could. And with that time, peace. Now the word used here is, is the word shalom. That doesn't just mean an absence of strife and absence of arguments. This is a peace that is deep and abiding. A peace that involves confidence in knowing that God is caring for you. Joy in knowing that God is providing for you. Hope, confidence even in the future. Knowing that God has already mapped it all out. That's the peace that belongs to the Son who guards and keeps the commands of His godly Father. Because ultimately, this is the promise of a new creation. The fulfillment of all that God has promised. The renewal of all that sin has broken. Yes, God will give you long life and, and peace here on earth. But this is just a drop in the bucket compared to the new heavens and earth that are coming when Christ returns. Then we have eternity. There will be no end. We talk about needing a birth, as a birthday gift, needing you know just another six hours in the day. That would be great. We're going to have an endless day. Endless time to use our gifts in utter and complete perfection. Peace. No strife, no disagreement, no misunderstandings, none of that. But perfect confidence. Anxiety is gone. Worry and fear 
are part of history. And we know the utter and complete peace of having God superintend every aspect of every part of your life. How wonderful will that be? And that's what's coming. That's what's coming for all who learn today the paths of wisdom. And it's not just about what you do. It's not just about the commands you obey. Verses 3 and 4 talk about the attitudes that we're called to cultivate. Young people, your father ever say to you, don't you speak to me with that tone of voice? Or, or maybe your mother says, hey, smile when you're doing your chores. See, they're concerned. Not only that you accomplish the task set before you, or that you obey the command that's been laid upon you, but, but that you do it in a way that honors God, in a way that, that recognizes that God is the one who has given you these opportunities and these callings. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Those aren't particular tasks to do. Those are attitudes to be embraced. Mercy. The word describes one who is, is kind and loving even toward those who don't deserve it. Yeah, I know dad's not perfect. I know grandpa sometimes isn't the, the best example for you. But don't grumble when they give you your chores. Don't shake your head and mutter about, you know, oh yeah, do, do what I do or what I say, not what I do. No. Show mercy to them. Recognize they're imperfect vessels, but God is using them to mold and shape you into Christ-likeness. <coughs> Treat them with mercy. Treat those around you, your siblings, with mercy. And truth. What about truth? The Hebrew word there isn't just about looking in a book and discerning what is true and what is false. No, the Hebrew word there speaks of that which is firm and faithful and unshakable. This is the truth that, that never fails, that never wavers, that never second guesses or goes back on its word. This is the word you would use to describe the, the laws and principles of mathematics. Something that never changes, never falters, that's always sure. Well, that's the way our character ought to be. When we say we're going to do it, we're going to do it no matter what the cost. When we say, okay, when our parents tell us that this is what they expect of us, we're going to do that even though our friends call us to do something else, even though someone else mocks us for following our parents' commands. The wise father longs for his child to have these qualities of mercy and truth, not just because that will result in a lack of headaches for mom and dad, but because mercy and truth are what what define God and His character. Psalm 25 says, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. And therefore we long for our children to be defined by a life of mercy and truth. Embrace these attitudes. Let them never depart from you because, because unless we intentionally cultivate these kind of attitudes, we won't. See, these attitudes, this character doesn't come natural to sinful people. It comes natural to us to disobey those who are over us. It comes natural to us to reject mercy in favor of vengeance. It comes normal for us to embrace lies and deceptions and untrustworthiness. 
So if we're to reflect the character of God, then we need to work at it. We need to be intentional about it. And that is our calling. It's our calling to reflect God. It's our privileged calling to honor God by honoring those whom He sets over us. And if we do, verse 4 promises, we will find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Favor, that's, that's the word most often translated grace in the Old Testament. It's, it's favor that is undeserved. It's when God sends a gift in love to one who deserves punishment. And high esteem, that's literally good understanding. It refers to folks thinking well of you. They'll see the best in you and ignore the worst. This is the, the promise that folks will bless you even when you don't deserve it. That they'll think the best of you even when you sometimes show the worst. This is what Joseph received from Potiphar and then from the jailer and then from Pharaoh himself after he had been sold into slavery. This is what Daniel received when he had been taken captive in Babylon. It's that, that favor that could never have been earned, could never have been expected and yet is received as a gift from God. However, there is some bad news. Despite what you might hear from the television preachers, we can't do this. We can't live this life of perfect obedience, this life of perfect attitude. We're broken. We're sinful. We're still struggling. And so we're going to fall short. There are going to be times when you say something to your parents that you shouldn't have. And you'll probably reap the reward of that. There will be times that you don't go to that trouble of remembering the commands that have been given to you. But Jesus never fails. He obeyed God with absolute perfection. He perfectly honored and obeyed Mary and Joseph. And He did it for us so that His righteousness would be imputed to us. And therefore, when we strive to embrace the wisdom of our parents and we do so imperfectly, God receives it as our perfect gift to Him. He accepts it as our perfect righteousness because it's been sanctified by Christ. And therefore, the reward comes to us not because we've earned it, but because Christ earned it for us. And He will continue working in us. He will continue perfecting us because Christ is pleading for us at God's right hand. And so we can trust Him. We can trust the Savior even despite our imperfections, our failures, our faults. And that's the other major lesson here that we're needing to learn. A faithful parent, a faithful father <coughs> or mother, you understand that they're not seeking to get you to obey and to learn their lessons and to, to grow up in the way that they command simply to make their life easy or or to make them look good. Ultimately, they're striving, if they're godly, they're striving to help you learn how to obey God, how to trust God. That's the second point here. I know we're, time is slipping away. The last point is very brief. But point two is, is probably the most important part of this passage. The godly father encourages an absolute reliance on God. See, that's why he gives the instruction, the guidance, the discipline that he gives. That his children might learn to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
You see, we're going to trust someone. Perhaps we'll trust some person on whom we will lay all the weight of of our happiness. Perhaps we'll trust some institution, expecting them to accomplish what we need accomplished. Perhaps we'll just trust in ourselves. We'll think nobody can do the job as well as I can. But none of them, including yourself, none of them can meet your needs. Only God can. So we need to trust in Him to meet our every need. The big needs for salvation, for life, for healing, but also the little needs for wisdom on this test, for, for help in this relationship, for the ability to get through this day with joy. We need to trust God, refusing to lean on ourselves, on our own understanding. And that's tempting. That's the thing that we... Well, I mean, that was a big part of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, wasn't it? Rather than simply taking God at His word and telling the snake to to go away, they trusted in themselves. They leaned on their own understanding. They looked at the fruit and saw that it was good to eat and desirable for gaining understanding. They trusted in themselves rather than God and that's what brought the whole thing down. Well does Romans 12 verse 16 warn us, do not be wise in your own opinion. That's almost the hallmark of, of being a teenager, right? Being wise in our own opinions. But this godly father says, no, you need to put your hope, you need to put your trust only and entirely in God. We need to ask what He has revealed about how the the world works. We need to submit to His judgment about what's good and what is not. We need to accept the guidance and the opportunity that He provides as we look forward. In God alone our confidence must rest, and not in us, and not even in our parents, but in God alone. And if we do that, then that faith in the Lord is certain to reveal itself. We're going to acknowledge Him, as verse 6 says, in all our ways. Our ways, the way in which we live, the lifestyle, the worldview, the choices that we make. If we truly rely on the Lord, if we acknowledge Him, or if we truly rely on the Lord, we will acknowledge Him in all our ways. When we're making decisions about what comes next, about what we're going to do, we're going to use the principles that He has set forth in His Word. When we are faced with difficult circumstance, we'll take... We'll take the comfort that we find in His promises. His promise that He'll always be with us. That He'll work all things for our good. When we're discussing nature or, or health or work with acquaintances of ours, we're going to find ways to turn the conversation around to God and show them that that's where the guidance that we need, the wisdom that we need is from. And when we're commended for what we've done, for doing such a good job, we're going to give the glory to God. Colossians 3 urges us, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. If we truly rely on God, we'll take that instruction seriously, and we will thus gain true wisdom. We will gain true wisdom because God will be guiding our paths. Now, of course, God is sovereign over all people at all times. We know that. But how comforting to know that He takes particular notice of us. He cares where you walk, what you do, what you experience. He's working in your friendships, in your relationships, in the opportunities you have. Also in those things that you struggle with. Yes, God is also working in mathematics and grammar. He's using that to mold and shape you. He's also working 
in those parents that sometimes seem so very difficult or those teenagers that seem sometimes so impossible. God is directing your path to draw you closer to Him and to to mold you and shape you into what He would have you be. But if you're to see that and if you're to be blessed by that, that requires something that does not come natural to any one of us. And that's humility. Humility. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Every one of us is tempted toward pride, even toward idolizing ourselves. That's as true for the person who is meek and mild as for the bold person. We all in our hearts are tempted to think that we have what we need in ourselves. That we can trust in ourselves. To our own self be true. What we forget is that we've never had enough in and of ourselves. Every talent we possess, God gave to us. Every insight we've ever come up with, God enabled us to have that insight. Every moment of every day that we live, God has sustained us. Every last bit of what we know and enjoy is from the Lord. We're not self-sufficient at all. And therefore, we need to reject the idea of self-sufficiency or self-reliance. And having rejected relying on ourselves, we need to fear the Lord and depart from evil. Fear the Lord. Trust Him above all others. Honor Him. Respect Him. Trust the Lord completely. And that's something that we're called to show. That's why verse 9 urges us, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. We're called to honor God with what we have. Confessing in word that what we have, He has given. But also using the stuff that God has given us in a way that honors and and magnifies Him. If we're truly devoted to the Lord our God, if we're really trusting in Him, if we have absolutely reliance on Him, that's going to show itself in the way that we use what He's entrusted to us. We're going to use the wealth that He has given to us, not merely to buy stuff for ourselves, or to save up for our rainy day. But we're going to use it to provide for others who have been given less. We're going to plan out how we use our wealth and how we use our resources, even how we use our time. Not just by looking to my needs, my desires, my enjoyment, but seeking the counsel of God's Word and of the wise elders and parents and leaders that He's set before us. Also our possessions. We're going to seek to use what He's given to us to serve God. You're going to use your car to give rides to that person who doesn't have a car, who doesn't have the ability to get around. You're going to use your tools, not just to fix your own stuff, but to fix the stuff of the person who doesn't have tools or doesn't have the ability to use them. You're going to use your home, not just as a place of refuge for yourself, but also as a place of of hosting and showing hospitality to your fellow church members and to your neighbors, where you can hold Bible studies and lead people to know the Lord. You're going to use your time, not just to, to earn money for yourself and to build up yourself and to enjoy your... No, you're going to use your time to serve God and to serve your neighbor and to serve your children and to serve those around you. We honor God when we devote to Him what He has given us. We see that particularly in the way that we devote our first fruits to Him. That refers to our tithing. 
Tithing, giving 10% of what he has given to us. Some people say, oh, tithing, that's an Old Testament thing. No, it's not. In Matthew 23, Jesus censured the Pharisees who were tithing of their mint and dill and cumin, the the littlest things that God had given them, their their, uh, spices, while neglecting works of, of mercy and love. And he didn't say, you know what, the time for tithing is ended, now you focus on works of mercy and love. No, no, no. He said, this you should have done. He commended their tithing. But not leaving the mercy and the love and the justice undone. You see, with the greater fulfillment Jesus has brought us, comes a greater gratitude from the heart of his people. But it's hard for us to tithe. Because we see that paycheck, we see that money come into our bank account and we think that's mine. It's not yours. God entrusted it to you as a means of serving Him. And when you give, when you take 10% right off the top of that and you say, Lord, I trust that you've given me more than enough. Here is that back which you have asked of me. You're demonstrating your faith in Him. And here's a secret that a lot of people don't know. When you... When you tithe, the Bible shows us, I mean, if you look at what the tithe is to be used for, it was to be brought into the courts of our God. Not to whatever ministry you wanted to give it to. Not to whatever place you think it would be well used. No, no, no. We give it to the Lord. And if we do that, if we do that faithfully, the deacons of our church will have such a headache. And what a wonderful headache it will be. It'll be the headache of wondering where we can use all this money to expand the ministry of the gospel, of of where we can support new outreaches for the gospel, of, of where we can help people in our community, people in our neighborhood in the name of Christ. That's not happening because, well, in, in the terms that Malachi 3 puts it, we're robbing God. By not bringing into the storehouse, into the house of the Lord, that which the Lord has entrusted to us. But if we do that, if we tithe from what He's given us, and if we use the gifts and the talents and the time that He has entrusted to us, if we do that, He says it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now to some extent that happens here and now. To some extent He's going to give us even more, so that we can continue to serve Him and and honor Him. Unless He chooses not to. Because sometimes He does choose not to. Sometimes He allows us to go through a period of impoverishment, a period of having less, perhaps to teach us how to sympathize with those who have less, or perhaps to equip us for ministry, or perhaps simply to give someone else the ability to minister to us. And other times he gives us more than enough. An ample amount that we can share abundantly. Whatever he gives us here and now, he gives us perfectly. But what he's giving us in the future, what is soon to come to us, is an abundance, is a treasure that is richer than anything this world has known. Where the very streets are paved with gold and where silver is as common as dust. That's coming. And that's coming to every one of God's people. But we must honor God here and now with what He has entrusted to us, demonstrating that we have absolute reliance on God. 
Now there's two last verses here. They're simple, but they're important. They're important because serving God in this world of brokenness, in this world of sin, is sometimes quite unpleasant. Because there's sickness, there is sin, there is brokenness on every side. And the Lord wants us to recognize, a godly father wants us to recognize that some of that unpleasantness is discipline from our God. And if we are to be wise, we have to learn from that discipline. And so the last thing we see here, he commends the discipline of our fatherly God. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Chastening, correction, those are different words for discipline, right? Sometimes when he sends suffering and pain into our lives, sometimes when our best laid plans turn bad, that's the discipline of the Lord. Almost always when we get caught in our sin and it brings us shame or punishment, that's discipline from the Lord. And the discipline of the Lord is hard. Discipline is always hard. And so the instruction we receive here is negative. Do not detest it. Do not despise it. That's our temptation. How do we do that? We, we explain it away. We try to find naturalistic explanations for it that, that show that this is just a coincidence, that this has nothing to do with what I've done, with misbehavior I've had, with sins that I'm hiding in my heart. It has nothing to do with me. It simply just happened. Well, you know what? Sometimes bad things do happen and they're not a consequence of our sin. Sometimes lightning strikes a house and the house catches fire and the house burns down and those people didn't do anything wrong. And other times that lightning is the chastising hand of God toward one of His children. How do we tell the difference? Well, that's the lesson. Whenever those hard things come into your life, you need to be asking the question, is this God's chastising hand? Have I done something? Have I cherished a sin? Have I been embracing wicked attitudes? Have I been refusing to trust in the Lord? Have I embraced rebellion against my God? Because if I have, then I dare not ignore that. I need to repent. This is God urging me, leading me, drawing me back to Himself. And woe to me if I reject that discipline. Because then I'm intentionally staying afar from my God. And it may be that you receive that hard diagnosis from the doctor and you go home and you spend some time soul searching and praying and reading scripture and, and speaking to those trusted counselors in your life and you come up with nothing. You don't see any obvious patterns of sin, any wicked ways within you. And in that case, then, then we need to simply trust in the Lord and, and seek His deliverance and His help. But we must take the time to search our souls. We must take the time to evaluate our lives. And if we do, well, that discipline comes with a promise. Whom the Lord loves, He corrects, just as a father, the son in whom He delights. He loves us. That's why He corrects us. He delights in us. He wants us to reflect the, the beauty and the purity and the holiness 
that characterizes Him. And that's why He sends those hard things into our lives. That's why He causes us to struggle a bit. But He does it out of love, which means He will never forsake us. He will never cast us off. So rejoice in that. And fall to your knees before the Lord and confess, He is my God, He is my Father, and He will never fail me. Brothers and sisters, every day of our life, we face choices, options, decisions of every sort. Only God can give us the wisdom that we crave, the true wisdom that we need to make those decisions in a way that honors Him and matures us. Godly parents have been given us to help us learn that wisdom. But we must desire we must desire the wisdom that He sets before us. We must cherish, we must deeply delight in the opportunities to gain wisdom that God provides. So let us pray that God would make wisdom our delight and then let us resolve each day to take up those opportunities for wisdom He gives us and to use them with our eyes upon Christ. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, You are so faithful, so merciful to us. Grant that we might never take for granted the opportunities for wisdom You have given us, but that we might delight in them, that we might take them up with eagerness and with joy, that more and more we might be molded and shaped into the image of Your beloved Son. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.